Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. Of all the available sources for Islamic history published before the 9th century of the Christian era, few are of greater importance than Kitab Futuch al Buldan, the Book of the Conquests of Lands, by Al-Baladari, a 9th century administrator at the Abbasid court. The text has been heavily relied upon by scholars for decades who seek to recount the early years of the Islamic empires. In Arab conquests and early Islamic historiography, the Futuh al-Budan of al-Buladari, Ryan J. Lynch, Associate Professor of History at Columbus State University in Georgia, takes a deeper look at the text, its author, sources, genre, and reception. Al-Buladari wasn't a historian, and he wrote Futuh al-Budan for a specific purpose, what was he trying to achieve, and why? This fascinating volume not only brings depths to Abeladari's texts, but offers insight into how historians of the late antique and early medieval Mediterranean and Middle East can engage with sources in a more critical manner while still recognizing their historical value. Published in 2020, Arab Conquests and Early Islamic Historiography is out in paperback from Ivy Taurus, which makes it easily accessible to students, specialists, and generalists alike. Here's my interview. Ryan Lynch, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Traditionally, our first question is about you. Um, So tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, about your your background and your academic interests, and what led you in the direction of researching this, this fascinating look into early Islamic historiography in the first place. Is this something you were always interested in, or was it something you came to? Thanks for uh, the opportunity to do this, Chris. Yeah, I um, my background, as I often will tell my students and colleagues and friends, um, is very much a, a background in history. Um, I was a bit unusual in that I knew from a very young age that history was what I wanted to study, although I didn't necessarily know it was going to be the history of Islam or the history of the Middle East, for that matter. Um, but uh, I, I had, you know, sort of interest in, especially in classical history, you know, I, I was sort of a, a young boy, I guess you would say, right? And that I was interested in World War II history and military history and, you know, the Romans. Um, and when I was in high school, I was trying to figure out a little bit more, you know, like what, what I might be able to do with my interest in history. Um, and uh, I came to, you know, having an interest in the, the Middle East in high school, actually, in, in part, you know, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, um, you know, because 9-11 happened basically just after I began, um, I began high school, right? And 
you know, when there are all these sorts of questions, especially being, you know, young at the time when the terrorist attacks occurred, right? You know, we asked my teachers, mm -hmm. you know, was there something about Islam? What was it in the Middle East, really? What is terrorism, right? And I sort of came to the, the, the realization, right, that all of the, the teachers and, you know, authority figures around me that I would ask these questions to never really had uh, very good answers to any of this, right? Um, and so I thought, you know, well, it would be worth me learning more about the Middle East and, and Islam. Uh, and of course, I, I did not go into, you know, this sort of Orientalist modern focus or the, you know, the work of modern Middle Eastern studies, not to say that everybody who works on the modern Middle East is an Orientalist by any means, but um, it sort of <laughs> allowed me, yeah, it, it sort of allowed me this opportunity as I, um, you know, would go on to, to college to study history and religious studies, um, it gave me this opportunity to really marry together some of these interests that I had had, even from when I was very, very young with this growing interest in wanting to understand um, Islamic history in the Middle East, right, which um, led me really to, to early Islam, right, and, you know, thinking about the sort of late antique milieu in which Islam was born, um, the Islamization of the Middle East, these became questions that I was very, very interested in. Um, when I was an undergraduate student, and it um, it just sort of went from there. Um, you know, like I said, my background as an undergraduate was in history and religious studies, and um, I went to to graduate school abroad. Um, I went from Stetson University as an undergraduate at a liberal arts college in Florida to the University of St. Andrews um, to work on uh, early Islam, specifically to work with uh, Robert Hoyland. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, things sort of went from there, right? Um, but how I kind of came to the study of um, early Islam in particular was this, this focus on history. And so I came a little bit late actually to the study of language, which is, you know, something I sort of emphasize to my students now as a, a, a real failure kind of, I guess, in, in advising that I had, um, you know, when I was a little bit younger, if I, I really should have and wish I could have had the opportunity to start working in Arabic earlier than graduate school um, but that really wasn't the case. So I, I spent a year, I did uh, an MLIT, a Master of Letters in Middle Eastern History and uh, Language at the University of St. Andrews before I went on to the University of Oxford to Pembroke College to continue to work with Robert Hoyland, actually, um, where I did my uh, Master's of Philosophy and my Doctorate of Philosophy in, in Oriental Studies and Islamic Studies and History. Uh, and is that where you discovered uh, al-Baladuri? Yeah, this is a really nice question, I think, especially for, for any students um, or advisors, for that matter, who might be listening to um, the podcast, because in so many ways, I, I kind of consider my, my earliest career when I first became interested in the Middle East as a student as a little bit of a failure of advising, especially, as I said, and opportunity, right, of, of being able to study Middle Eastern languages a, a little bit earlier than I would have liked. Um, but kind of my experience in graduate school of, of working with Robert um, was sort of the opposite of that. It was really this emphasis on um, what really great and important advising could be. So when I um, arrived to Oxford, um, I was always I was always very set on work, wanting to work on Islamic origins and uh, early Islam and the conquest period in particular. But I had a very different um, you know sort of PhD. Um, dissertation or, or thesis, um, you know, in mind at the time, I, I really wanted to do more work on sort of the, the, the quote unquote fictional aspects of the early Arabic historical tradition that we would have, the sort of storytelling, some are aspect um, that we see surrounding the depiction of the companions of the Islamic prophet Muhammad in uh, sort of both history and literature. 
And um, I was sort of grasping to try and figure out exactly how I was going to focus on this. I had in mind, you know, sort of particularly famous um, companions from around the sort of Islamic world in the early period that I wanted to look at their depictions of from the conquest period, um, specifically in later sources. And um, but I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do with it. And it was really through, you know, good conversations with uh, Robert that, you know, he had kind of emphasized that, that some of the best work that he had seen from me while I was still a master's student uh, related to looking at uh, Balladeries, uh, you know, material and, and some essays that I had written um, while still working on my master's degree about that and about the early Arabic historical tradition. And at the time, and, and some who may be listening to this podcast may also have similar thoughts about this, right? Um, I sort of said to Robert, you know, what what else could really be said about Balladeri, right? There is so much material out there about him. It's one of the earliest um, surviving Arabic um, Islamic texts that we have that tell us about the earliest uh, decades, let alone the earliest centuries, right? Um, surely, I assume there had been, you know, a lot out there already. And um, Robert just sort of suggested, you know, I, I really want you to take the first few months of of this um, work to, to really go and see what is out there, because I think you'll discover that there's a lot less than, than you realize. And so I went away to try and um, answer those questions, right? And of course, you know, you find um, references to Balladeri where, um, you know, modern scholars using his material all over the place, right? Especially any anything really that touches on early Islam or the conquest period, you will find Balladeri's name appear in it at some point. But I discovered actually that for texts and for an author that were so well known, actually, there was surprisingly little that had been published about who he really was or the construction of these texts in general. And so that was a real aha moment for me, right? I ended up very focused, um, you know, from that point on about trying to say, you know, can I bring together all of this material that has been written about Balladeri and, and hopefully go much deeper on it, right? To be able to provide something that would be useful for, um, you know, students of, of Islam in the Middle East, um, maybe not even just the early period, but pre-modern history more generally, uh, but that would also be valuable to specialists, right, who may even have some of those notions of their own mind of, you know, well, do I really need to read a book about Balladeri or his works? You know, I've used Balladeri many times. Um, you know, I hope that people who read my book will come away thinking, you know, uh, actually, I had never really considered, um, you know, these sorts of questions about Balladeri or um, the works that survive, right? And, and I feel like I'm really taking something away from, you know, from, from reading my book. And also, you know, things that will hopefully positively affect um, the approaches of uh, future researchers who may be working on uh, early Islam. I think the last four decades has been a really sort of exciting time for, for the study of this period, because um, it, if you sort of think of, of uh, uh, Krona and Cook's Hagarism as a, as, a, as a challenge that was thrown down, you know, prove your story or, uh, or, or abandon it. Um, there's been so much interesting work that's come out, especially considering uh, the number of naysayers who said that it's been far too long and we'll never be able to recover these sorts of things. So, um, and, and I think what I appreciate about your book is it, it really is kind of a step in that direction of actually, if we just take a minute, we, we can sort of reassess these sources and, 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 and get a new light on them, even though, you know, historians have been working with them almost from the very beginning of, of the Islamic tradition 1500 years ago. So on that point, 
Chloe, uh, let me just ask uh, briefly for our listeners, because the book is about the Kitab Uddin, or the Book of Conquest of the Lands by Aladuri, and thank you for correcting my pronunciation, um, but can you just sort of for context's sake, tell us about this text and its author, um, knowing that we're going to get uh, much more in depth a little later on? So yeah, there's not really a, a mispronunciation in name, so much of a, a difference in pronunciation of name, Chris. Um, you know, Baladuri, Baladuri, kind of even sometimes I will, will say it slightly differently. But yeah, my, my text is all about the Kitab Futu al-Budan, uh, the, the book of uh, conquest of lands by uh, Baladuri. And it, it really is um, focused on two things. The, the book itself, for those who are not familiar with what uh, I have written, have not heard of my book or have not had the opportunity to, to read it yet themselves, um, the, my book itself is very much focused on the book. It's focused on these questions of um, the content of the book itself, um, you know, sort of uh, the context in which it was written. It's uh, questions over what we can say about the author of Baladari, this ninth century Muslim author working from the court of the Abbasid Caliphs um, in Baghdad. Uh, but it's also, you know, about questions of the reception history of the text, the limitations of the text, its value for uh, modern researchers. And um, while it is very, in some cases, very specifically focused on Futu al-Budan, um, I, I spend a lot of time um, making a, a number of suggestions about the author and the ninth century context in which it is written that I hope will be valuable for anybody who is working on um, early Islam, the conquest period or the Umayyad or Abbasid period, right? And these are some of the challenges, right? For, for anybody who is interested in working on early Islamic history, which um, at least my experience in graduate school was that there are um, you know, quite a few students um, of Islamic history who arrive to graduate school with the idea that, ooh, the early period is interesting and attractive in, in, in some way to them, right? And, and this is really what they want to work on. And I can't tell you the number of students that, I, you know, colleagues that I made when I was a graduate student and that, you know, students that I have since worked with, you know, since who uh, arrive into graduate school thinking they'll work on the early period and then often end up frustrated by it, actually, right, because of a lack of availability of sources, or in some cases, this feeling that, you know, the sources that we do have are so well-trodden that there really is not any opportunity to, to add something to what we can say about the um, early period or those sources. And some of what I hope I've accomplished with my book is to, to say that um, it's about asking the right questions of these sources, right, or maybe approaching these very traditional sources like Belladery's work is. Um, you know, in a different way, in a different light of, of kind of taking that evidence and holding it in a different direction or applying new approaches to it that, that um, allow us to say new things about um, these texts. And, and so that would, you know, be some of the things that I hope I have accomplished in this book is that I will get uh, readers, um, whether young students, early students of um, Islamic history or the Middle East or Byzantine studies for that matter, or anybody who works on the early medieval Mediterranean or specialists who are, you know, later in their career to, to think about it, um, the, the text Futu al-Budan and, and Baladari more generally and, and say, you know, well, I never really thought about this text actually in that way. And I feel like this gives me um, new opportunities for my own research or, or how I'm going to teach or use this text going forward. Well, let's dive in then. Um, I think you you do a really nice job uh, encapsulating the, the issues that need to be unpacked in just two sentences. 
uh, on the very first page of your introduction, um, and I quote, the high estimation in which Bellotary is held also by modern research may be due to his not suppressing the pro-Umayyad tradition. It is the circumstance that makes his rendering such a valuable historical source to us, but it cannot replace a real historiographical appraisal of his works, end quote. Um, so let's unpack those, because you, you put a lot in two sentences there. So can we begin by discussing what this early historical tradition of which he is part is, and then what you describe as the problematic example nature of the quote-unquote narrative sources? Sure, yeah. So I decided to, you know, open the book with this quote, actually. It's, it's not my, um, you know, my writing in particular. It comes from the research from the 1960s, I think, 1964, um, Erling Peterson, you know, had put this together, you know, about he, he was writing a book on um, Ali and Muawiyah in the early Arabic historical tradition, and Baladari and his texts uh, feature quite prominently. And I remember when I was reading Peterson's work, this really stood out to me, of course, because again, you know, him writing in the early 1960s, um, I realized as I was putting together this this research for my for my dissertation um, that that Baladari had never really been given this real historiographical uh, appraisal of his works, right? And so I set about trying to uh, accomplish that here. But yeah, I mean, there there are many challenges, right? As I as I mentioned about, um, you know, many students who may arrive to graduate school or to the study of pre-modern Islamic history, very interested in the early Islamic period, will discover um, the sources that survive, especially from the Arabic historical tradition, and by and large, we are talking about Arabic language sources as our earliest sources that survive, um, have a number of limitations or at least things that we need to be careful about to know about as we are approaching this material, right? And that is, of course, that for anybody who wants to be able to say anything about the first decades of Islamic history, not just the life and career of the Islamic prophet Muhammad and his companions, but the conquest period, the creation of the first Islamic states, the Maya dynasty, the reality, of course, is that um, at least from the Arabic perspective, we don't really have very much that survives contemporaneous to these events in this early period. Much of what we have are, um, you know, narrative sources, as um, I describe them and as many others would describe them um, in this Arabic tradition that are um, at least committed to writing from uh, a much later period, right? Maybe at best the very late 700s CE, um, you know, most of these sources, including Baladari's texts of the earliest sources, actually come from the 800 CE. And there are, of course, all sorts of limitations to this, right? And, and as you had mentioned earlier, um, Chris, you know, a lot of this research had started to be done already by, you know, uh, Wandsborough and, you know, people like Peterson in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, especially with Michael Cook and Patricia Crona putting together Hagarism and all the sorts of studies um, that have come about since um, related to the Arabic historical tradition. And there's been an enormous amount of really fantastic work um, approaching the early Arabic tradition from you know a variety of ways, a sort of provisionist, sort of skeptical uh, tradition, a more positivist approach, um, and, and sort of everything in between. But the challenges that we have, of course, are that sources like um, Al-Baladari's work, both Futul al-Budan, the, the text that I focus on in, in my book, and also his much larger other text, Ansab al-Ashraf, 
um, you know, the, the challenges that we have are these are texts that are not committed to writing until the ninth century and by an author who did not witness these events himself. And uh, very often, you know, in terms of this tradition, this was material that was circulating in an oral form, um, you know, for, for hundreds of years um, before being committed to writing in a way that I think many of us in a modern case would be much more comfortable with, right? And there's been an enormous amount of fantastic work, um, you know, in, in sort of memory studies, right, in the sort of oral or oral traditions, right, about um, how learning worked in the early Islamic period in both the, um, under the Umayyads and the Abbasids of this sort of um, going to study at the feet of a, of a master, um, you know, where you would recite, he would recite the traditions to you and you would recite them back to him in order for him to verify that you had learned them appropriately. So once, once upon a time, right, we, we had just this default skepticism to kind of say, especially from the Western canon and from this very Western perspective, right, that um, the oral tradition was unreliable, clearly it would get things wrong. How could we expect that for, you know, literally hundreds of years, you know, generation after generation of people would be transmitting this information that supposedly came from the early 7th century and that it could survive in a reliable way all the way into the 9th century when authors like Abu Ladari were sort of putting them together and, and sort of canonizing them in a written form. Um, but what we've seen now, um, uh, again, you know, with all of these growths in these various um, subfields, both in, you know, sort of Middle Eastern studies and um, Arabic historiographical studies, but as I mentioned in things like memory studies, is we discover that this oral tradition could be uh, a lot more reliable than, than we expected, right? And so some of what I was hoping to do was, was to really look at this, right? But of course, in the introduction in the book, I really do need to address many of these questions, especially because I hope that my book will be useful to not just specialists of early Islam, uh, but people like yourself who may work in, in later periods, but um, will be teaching or have interests in the early periods as well, but also for people who don't necessarily work in the Arabic tradition, right? Who don't know Arabic, who may be relying on reading um, Abu Ladari's texts um, in translation, which does exist for Futul al-Buldan, right? Um, so I, I hope to be able to provide something in, in that context for, for sort of everybody in this process, right? Um, but, you know, some of what I would say, of course, is that um, there are, of course, limitations to relying certainly solely on sources like Abu Ladari's. And we've been very, very fortunate, especially over the last 20 or 30 years or so, we've seen enormous growth in, um, you know, our understanding of early Islamic um, architectural history and material culture. There's been an enormous growth in Arabic papyrological studies, right, and uh, Arabic and even pre-Islamic uh, uh, epigraphy, you know, coming from um, southern, central, northern Arabia. Um, there's pretty pretty incredible work that's being done to really diversify the, the types of sources that we have to tell us about these earliest centuries. Um, and all of that is going to be enormously valuable as we try and, you know, sort of construct these, these, reconstruct these ideas of what really happened in the early centuries. But that's only one part of what my book is really about. I, I certainly, as, as somebody who is interested in the conquest period and the Umayyad period um, in particular, I'm very interested in being able to say or to try and reconstruct what really happened, quote unquote, right? in um, these periods with, you know, with all the sort of usual caveats of understanding the challenges of, of reconstructing this. 
But as we read a text like Bellavaris from the ninth century, we also need to be very aware and very understanding that some of what we are doing is we are looking at the seventh century or the eighth century through the lens of a ninth century scholar. Um, his, his framework um, is so different from that of the earliest generations. Um, he's writing, of course, about the conquests and the establishment of the early Islamic state at a time when the conquests ultimately had been successful. This process of quote unquote Islamization of territories, you know, all the way from Spain and Portugal across North Africa, you know, and basically to the Indus uh, River Valley in the, the east had long been completed. Right. Um, these were settled events that he was reflecting on rather than things that that had a sort of unknown um, occurrence or an unknown end point. Um, and so all of those are things that we need to appreciate as we read these later narrative sources, right, is that they are being written at a very later time and that we see many of the concerns and many of the biases that come from, you know, the, the Abbasid court in the ninth century or, you know, from the Abbasid state in the 800s um, that, that have to affect our, our reading of these texts and our understanding of these texts and, and how we approach them. I think that's a, that's a really good point that you raise about um, particularly uh, what the purpose of, of writing a historical text was at the time. Um, and I really do think that that is something that we don't necessarily go over as much with students, especially at, at the undergraduate level as, as we might. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago reflecting in a class that um, the Prophet Muhammad probably would have thought it was extremely strange that people would want to know when he was born. You know, it's just not something that a biographer at the time would have felt the need to include. It wasn't part of the story that made a difference, right? You know, but today, if you're writing a history, you know, you have to have all of these certain sets of data because that's what we consider, you know, to be proper methodology and, and proper approach. Yeah, precisely. If I, if I can comment on that, some of those those issues are are things that that you know those of us who are in the classroom right we we need to constantly be reflecting with our um, you know our, our students right which is that yeah what what our understandings of of history and what we expect history to look like in the twenty first century um, is very very different than you know at, at various points and various places um, you know over history more generally, right? And and some of those are the challenges that we have of working with this, these uh, early Arabic uh, narrative sources, as I described them, right? Which is um, we, we expect them to approach history in ways that we expect history to be written. But of course, some of the challenges that we have, right, even for somebody like me as a, as a historian today, some of the challenges that we have are, um, that our understanding of history is very different than it was in the 15th century or the 9th century or the 7th century or, or something like that, right? And the things that we are interested in are not necessarily the same. And of course, we also have this reality that the idea of historian, right, this profession of historian, even though we may refer to, to authors like Balladry as historians today, didn't exist in the 9th century of Austin world. Um, these were people who had other professions, right? And, and history, the recording of the past, was just one part of uh, what they did. And so even if we think about it just from that very simple way of approaching it and realizing that, well, Balladery was not a historian specifically because that, that position, that idea didn't really exist at the time. 
Um, hopefully that immediately gets everybody who is reading the text or reading my book for that matter to think about how this, this material is put together in Futua Al-Buldan in a different way. So on that note, uh, tell us more about Abuladuri and the context uh, that, that he worked in. What, what do we know about him? Um, even though, again, as I just mentioned, he probably would consider this a very odd question. Yeah, this is uh, this is a really good and important question, right? And 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 that's interesting. You know, I, I have a I picked a quote in my book from um, you know Chase Robinson that to to be totally honest and and you know to, with, about Chase specifically, I'm a little unfair to him about right because he commented in um, one of his own articles. Uh, Chase wrote that you know Baladri is uh, one of the quote unquote you know better known um, early Islamic authors that we that we have, right? And uh, I took sort of issue with this in, in, in the book to try and say, you know, is Baladari really better known, right? What can we actually say about him as an author? And I'm slightly unfair to Chase there, of course, because some of what Chase, I, I believe, was trying to say um, when he wrote this was to talk a little bit about how Baladari's text is very well known and very well utilized when we do have a lot of material that survives from the Abbasid world, um, which is also very, very interesting and maybe in some cases even more interesting than a text like Futua al-Buldan, but it has not necessarily received as much attention as Baladari's work has. And so so that's interesting in itself. But yeah, in terms of what we know about Baladari as an author, um, the, the unfortunate thing is we, we don't know a great deal, right? I mean, even if you read um, encyclopedia entries about Baladari for that matter, you very often see the, the death date of 892 CE, 279AH, right? But as I try to point out in the book, you know, we, we don't actually know for certain when he died. And this is not uncommon, actually, for authors in the, the 8th or 9th century. Um, anybody who has worked with biographical dictionaries will know that, you know, knowing precisely when a person died is not um, always something um, that these sources will tell us, right? But uh, we, we don't even know that about him, right? We we know certainly that he was alive in the, in the 9th century. You know, some of the Sources that we have do suggest that he probably dies in the later half of the ninth century. Um, but in terms of who he was or where he was working, the, the biographical traditions that survive to tell us about him describe him actually first and foremost as a poet and as a secretary, right, a, a katib. Um, you know, working for the Abbasid state. And this is, of course, very important for us, you know, to try and think about who he was as an author or what his interests were in creating texts like Futuh al-Buldan or um, Ansab al-Ashraf. Um, you know, as I mentioned, he was not a historian, you know, quote unquote, in a traditional sense or, or what we would think about in a modern sense as a historian, even though what he is dealing with is a lot of the, the fabric, the material of the, the past as he is constructing his texts. But understanding that he was a poet and a, a scribe or a secretary, um, you know, and of course, we should be fair here, as a secretary in the Abbasid world was much more than just a scribe. These were, you know, men of letters, uh, you know, the, the people who worked in Adib, who, or excuse me, in Adab, um, you know, who were at the court, who were, were teaching and doing so much more, who were expected to know, of course, the, the, the so-called history of the prophets and kings, but also to know, um, you know, uh, arithmetic and, and grammar and Quran and often music and, and, as I mentioned, poetry. And so this was the milieu in which um, Baladari would have been contributing to. Um, 
We can say a, a little bit more about him, though, and, and this is some of what I argue, right? Aside from the biographical sources that we have that survive to tell us a little bit about him, our earliest surviving sources, um, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly for anybody who works on the period is Ibn al-Nadim's uh, theorist, um, to tell us, uh, you know, not a, a great deal beyond this about um, Baladri. But we do know, of course, from other texts and from our understanding of Abbasid history more generally, that uh, he would have been, uh, you know, living at some some pretty interesting times in, in the Abbasid state. And, and this is some of actually what I argue um, in the book, is that um, Baladari almost certainly would have been living and working through, um, you know, the, the so-called anarchy at Samara, you know, of the 860s. And some of what I argue in my book is that this probably had a very, very significant influence on him putting together uh, the Futuh al-Buldan. It, it was, I argue, actually probably some of the reason why he put together the book and why it takes the form um, that he does. Um, and this, again, you know, I, I need to reference Chase Robinson here, and it comes back to the first question you asked me kind of about my background and how I came to the study of Al-Baladri was... Uh, you know, I, I saw this line in reading um, Chase's work on the early Islamic historical tradition, right? He, mm -hmm. he had kind of referred to Baladari's, um, you know, history, his Futu al-Buldan, uh, as a, a sort of administrator's handbook before he sort of moved on. Um, he didn't linger on this comment at all. And as is so often the case, I think, for those of us who are junior scholars, right, um, this was like a glass shattering moment for me because I, as soon as I read this, I just thought, oh, my goodness, I, I never really thought about, you know, this text as anything but, you know, so-called um, conquest literature as a work of futur, right? Um, but what does it mean to be an administrator's handbook? Baladari was an administrator in the court of the caliphs, right? Um, he would have been very well connected. He would have had access to um, a fairly enormous amount of, um, you know, material, you know, especially historical material, right, as he's putting together this work. But he's also, you know, an administrator. He's trying to keep the state running, the Abbasid state running, at a time um, where it wasn't always clear um, what the Abbasid state would look like going forward, right? Um, when we have these sort of uh, Turkic revolts that are happening, we have a series of caliphs who are murdered in the 860s during this period of the so-called anarchy at Samara, right? And, and Baladari, um, I believe, was, was writing his texts probably in the context of all of this because he was part of this administrative apparatus, this administrative regime, uh, machine that was started with, that was trying to keep the state running, trying to keep the state functioning, and was trying to look back to its great historic past, at least how he and probably contemporaries were imagining it, to try and say, you know, we've, we've been through moments of challenge. The Islamic community has been through moments of challenge before, and we got through it. And here is ultimately how the state best functions, whether things are good or whether things are bad. And here certainly is how the state functioned and was established at the time of the exemplar, right? When we think about the Islamic prophet Muhammad himself and the people who knew him, who converted with him, who served in the conquest, the, the so-called Rashidun, right, who had established this idea of a caliphate. Um, and, and, and some of what Futu al-Budan is, is doing and what the author is doing in this, right, is he's trying to bring all this material together to say that even if the state is not functioning well during his lifetime, 
uh, it could get back to the way it was before. And it was ever so important to train other administrators at the court to keep the state functioning. And a piece of how you did that was to look back on what made the state great. I think it's it's interesting. There's there's a lot of parallels here um, with uh, what I talked about with uh, Matthew Gordon when uh, we were discussing his, his biography of uh, Ahmed ibn Taloun, who uh, basically is sent to Egypt as governor right at the same time. And that was one of the points that he raised quite a bit was that this is a very important and critical time in Abbasid history um, in a, with, with the what's going on in Samarra, with the, the rebellion of the Zanj and in uh, the Tigris-Euphrates Delta. And um, I almost feel like there needs to be a re-examination of Abbasid history about how this very pivotal moment changed so many things. And, and so based on this context, and let me, let me uh, follow up with that by asking, since this is the context in which uh, the, the Fatua al-Badan was written, you, you remarked, or, or uh, uh, sorry, uh, Peterson remarked that, uh, that uh, he doesn't suppress the pro-Umayyad historical tradition, which is, again, one of the things that tends to get uh, uh, remarked on quite a bit with this text, because otherwise that tended to be the rule during the Abbasid state. So my question then is, what was it about this moment where that, that led him to feel that he shouldn't um, and for basically lack of a better way to put it, uh, how, how was he able to get away with doing that? Yeah, there, there's a, a lot to unpack here. And if I could actually roll back for just a second, Chris, to your comment about Matthew Gordon, right? You know, I feel like in some cases, this interview is just going to be me praising all of these wonderful other scholars who, you know, were deeply influential in, in how um, this book came together in my own research, both, you know, in the past and, and going forward. But Matthew Gordon's work on, you know, the sort of Turkish revolts of the ninth century um, was was really critical and important for, you know, putting together my understanding of what the ninth century of Asid world looked like. And and for me in trying to better understand um, Baladari and his context, right? And and so thinking about the, you know, the governorship of Ahmed ibn Tulun, that's again some of what I actually argue in the book, right? Is that um, you know, it's exactly that context in which I think Baladari is writing. The Abbasid state is devolving. It is collapsing. It is fragmenting, right? Um, these governors who, you know, had, had been established in sort of outlying provinces, you know, far from Samara or far from Baghdad, you know, far from the court of the, the, court of the caliphs themselves, you know, were, were claiming more and more authority uh, on their own. And at the same point, the state was still, you know, had an army to pay and administrators to pay and had to function able to provide protection and support for, you know, sort of pilgrims and for this diverse population throughout the Islamic world, right? And 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 that's some of what makes this Futu al-Bodan a, a text that is challenging to read, right? Because, and I talk about this, of course, in the book as well, is that despite that I am arguing that I think Baladari is probably putting this, this text together at the end of the 860s, at the end of this period of the anarchy, um, it doesn't feature at all in his book. Um, Chris, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't mention the Turkish revolts whatsoever. He doesn't really mention this devolution in role at all, uh, at all, right? And in part, that's probably because um, 
those were not settled issues, right? Um, he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. He was also certainly trying to protect himself and to keep himself at least under the radar enough that he wasn't going to upset his masters and the people at the court around him, uh, you know, that, that gave him access to this material and employed him and, and so on. And and so all of those are, are challenges, right? And, and this leads into this question about, you know, this sort of pro-Umayyad tradition, and I think that, um, again, over the last 20 years or so, there has been a, a, a much needed reevaluation of this question about the Umayyad tradition, right? Because even when I was, you know, still in university as a student, I, you know, I remember being taught this, this kind of idea of, you know, well, the Arabic um, historical tradition is actually very harsh on the Umayyads. You know, they come across mm-hmm. always very negatively. A lot of times they're just Passover, or, you know, they're, they're a, a blip because why would you want to focus on these these losers, you know, these people who are overthrown by the Abbasids, these people who are seen, you know, as ruling unjustly or, you know, against Islam in some cases, right, depending on, um, you know, the, the background of uh, the, the speaker. But the, the reality actually is that we have a, a pretty significant amount of um, what I would refer to actually as pro-Umayyad uh, material that survives, even in the sort of great histories like, you know, um, that of uh, Atabari, for, for instance, and certainly that of um, Baladari. And, you know, I'll, I'll keep my comments, you know, here limited to, to Baladari's work more generally, but it's something that we see in both Futul al-Buldan and his other much larger work on Sabal Ashraf, the, the so-called lineage of, of nobles, right? Which is that mm-hmm. um, the Umayyads um, come across fairly well, right? And some of what I argue in this book actually is because if we read it through this lens of it being an administrator's handbook or an administrator's history of people of, of a, an author trying to educate the administrators at the court um, who are trying to keep the state functioning, who are trying to train the next generation of administrators to, to keep the state together at a time of challenge, um, you know, in the hope that there will be brighter days ahead. Some of that is reflecting on the, the reality that much of the administrative apparatus that the Abbasids had used and were using, right, and even in the ninth century, um, these were, um, you know, tax agreements and, and um, you know, bureaus, uh, you know, function institutions that had been established by the, the, the companions, by the so-called Rashidun or, or by the Umayyads, right? And, and that's why, as I talk about in the book, even a figure who comes across, you know, pretty negatively in a lot of the historical, the later historical material like Malia, um, you know, features fairly positively in, in you know, Baladari's text. And that's not because he's necessarily interested in kind of raising up the Umayyads on a platform to say these were good and just rulers. These were the best of the, the world at the time, the best that God had put on earth. But more this kind of recognition that there needed to be a respect, a deference to the caliphal office, right? Mm-hmm. There was a recognition that these were, um, you know, that these these were people who were literally the, the successors to the messenger of God, right, to, to Muhammad on, on earth, right? And that this was a position that needed to be respected and that had... Um, you know, that had significant importance even in this period that would be, um, you know, by later authors, uh, not very positively reflected on. And, and so I see 
I, I see some of that as being, you know, very, very important. But of course, that is a, a bias that I would argue that Baladari's texts have that, um, you know, sort of modern researchers need to be aware of, right, is that he, and you see this in Futu al-Buldan in particular, as I talk about in the book, right, is that he does not talk about unpleasant things um, in this text, right? He doesn't really talk about those moments of true chaos that had existed. He doesn't talk really very much about the first fitna or for that matter, the second fitna at all. He doesn't talk about the third fitna at all. And I, I talk about this very explicitly as, you know, I'm a researcher that has actually a lot of interest and that has published on the second Islamic civil war, the, the, the second fitna in the 680s and into the early 690s, you know, and that's that um, for an author who had access to an enormous amount of material related to the second fitna, you know, the sort of um, period of power of Ibn al-Zubayr and, and ultimately the victory of uh, Abd al-Malik ibn Marwan, you know, in, in that civil war, that we see this enormous amount of material related to the second fitna that survives in Ansab al-Ashraf, and none of it appears in Futu al-Buldan. The only time the second fitna is referenced is when dating things, right? And he, he makes reference to something happening during the fitna of Ibn Azubayr, right? And that in itself, if we as historians or modern scholars who are approaching this text, is enormously revealing to us about Baladari's intention in putting together this text, right? And for me, some of what I argue from this and from, you know, quite a lot of other evidence that we have from the text, both what is included in the text and things that are omitted from the text, is this kind of recognition, you know, that, that one of the things he's trying to do is not portray the Islamic state throughout its history from Muhammad's lifetime right up until his own day in a negative light. And that means, you know, providing respect to the, 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 the caliphal office more, more generally. And some of that is probably because the caliph, even in his day, um, in the 860s or, or what, what have you, was still expecting the tax revenue from the outlying prof- provinces, was still expecting deference and homage from these other parts of the so-called Islamic world in that period outside of central Iraq. After discussing the author in his context, um, you really do a, a, a multi-chapter deep dive into the text itself, um, beginning with an examination of the sources that he uses, um, the way he writes, um, and going from there. Can you describe the analyses that, that you put this text through and what we get out of them? So I'll, I'll, I'll start, you know, maybe by mentioning something I, I think I only hinted at earlier, which is that, you know, maybe a criticism of my book that I, I even anticipated while I was writing it, right, which is that um, it's a book in some cases that is sort of stuck between two imagined audiences that I have for it, right? On, on one hand, it's um, for, you know, sort of non-specialists of uh, early Islamic history or of the Arabic historical tradition, whether that be Byzantinists, whether that be people who work on other parts or periods of um, Middle Eastern history or the Islamic world, um, or whether that be, um, you know, students who are first approaching the study of uh, Islamic history, whether as undergraduates or, or graduate students. While at the same time, um, it also has an audience of specialists, of people who have been doing this even a lot longer than, than you or I have been, Chris, right? And it's trying to also 
um, you know, contribute in a meaningful way to that very different audience, right, who, um, you know, may know this text or believe they know this text very well, they've used it many times, right? Um, and so it's really trying to, to, to present new things to those uh, people as well. And so that's a, a bit of a challenge as I, I think about, you know, how the book is kind of laid out, right? So I, I open with a very specialist chapter of the book, which is talking about the manuscript history of the book itself, right? Which is, I, I you know, would argue something that is not done uh, maybe as often as we would expect, right? You know, for a lot of these, you know, so-called canonized, critically important early Arabic text that we have that survived from um, the 8th or 9th century CE, right? Just think for a moment about how many times you may have used texts like that of um, Baladari or Khalifa ibn Hayat or um, Atabari, right? And um, how reliant we are actually on the popular editions of these texts, right? Mm -hmm. None of us ever go back to the manuscripts really anymore, right? Unless we really come to a sort of sticky wicket that we think, um, you know, requires us to go and, and seek these things out. Um, and, and how and, many of us could even do that if we if, if we wanted to, right? Um, yeah, and that and that was some <laughs> of what I discovered actually. Even relying on you know a, a critically important uh, work like that, work that like that of uh, Fort Sezgin, right? You know, uh, is that um, it is incomplete, and you know I, I had to spend the better part of you know six months trying to figure out where manuscripts of Futual Bulan were around the world, right? So I've done some of that for you in the book, um, you know, which includes actually um, discussing a, you know, previously unpublished and what I argue to be, you know, pretty firmly the earliest surviving manuscript of Futul Abudan that serves, you know, that survives at, um, you know, the, the, the rare uh, book and manuscript library at, at Yale University. And so that's some of what I wanted to accomplish there in a chapter that is very, very specialist, right? And then it moves into a chapter about the context of Baladari, who Baladari was, what we can say about him through the, the, the biographical tr tradition and what was happening in the ninth century when he would have been writing um, Futul al-Budan and Ansab al-Ashraf. Um, and so that's definitely a much more approachable chapter, right? Certainly one that will be of, um, you know, Real, really essential value, I hope, for, for, for people who are not specialists. And mm -hmm. then I move into a, a much more specialized chapter, again, of talking about the sources that um, Abel Adhari is working, you know, with, right? And some of that had me put together, um, you know, really a, a sort of crude digital database of uh, transmitters that appear throughout Futwa al-Budan. Where was al getting his information from? Um, do we see a geographical bias? Um, do we see, uh, you know, a, a, a particular region or particular transmitters, um, you know, that appear more often um, than, than others, right? What does he do, as is so often the case with the early Arabic historical tradition, how does he approach conflicting reports, right, that he will very often provide for us multiple takes of the same event um, in the text, right? And so I am looking at all of this, and, and some of what I um, am doing is that I, I think I very meaningfully and usefully identified that um, Baladari is using particular introductory words in his Isnad, um, in his chains of transmission, uh, you know, to, to really signify to the reader when he was receiving information orally from a teacher 
or when he was relying on written materials specifically, right? And so I speak a lot about what we could say about the early written Arabic historical tradition, you know, in the early ninth century and in the mid ninth century when Baladari would have been living and working that I think will be very, very useful, not just for our understanding of Baladari's texts, but for really anybody who is working on these early Arabic um, historical uh, you know, texts. And then the other chapters that I look at, which again are, I think, more valuable to a non-specialist audience too, are I am looking at questions of the content and genre of this text itself, right? You know, what can we really say? What does this text look like? In terms mm -hmm. of the genre question, right, some of what I argue in our text is that anybody who has really just kind of taken the title Kitab Futua al-Muran you know, at face value to say, well, this is a work of futua. It is a, a piece of conquest literature, right? Um, is being deceived, really. And, and, and some of what I talk about in the book, actually, is that this was almost certainly not the title that was given uh, by Baladari to this book, right? And many of the biographical sources that survive um, that detail Baladari and his work only usually describe this work as Kitab al-Buldan, right? A, a sort of almost the implication that it would be a geographic work, an administrative geography. And so I talk about all of the common features that this text has, not just with other, you know, conquest histories, right? Or conquest literature of the, the Maghazi, um, but also with texts of Kharaj and Amwal, right? You know, thinking about the books of taxation, these, and as I mentioned, these administrative geographies, because a lot of what I argue is that there is an enormous amount of overlap between these different genres of, of texts. Um, and then in terms of content, I, I talk, you know, just more generally about, you know, what actually appears in this book and what can we say, not just about Abeladhari's access to historical material, right, but why does he include the information that he does in the text and why does this text look the way that it does. And so a lot of that, again, goes back not just to discuss the important things that appear in the Futura, but also to, um, to, to think more generally, but also to um, think more generally about how the context in which the author was living and working um, would have influenced what he chose to put into the book. And then the final chapter is all about the reception of uh, Fatua al-Buldan. And it's a chapter that I am enormously proud of, right? And again, it's one of these things that I have to be very, very thankful to, to our peers and colleagues in the field, right? Because I, I was very fortunate to be, uh, you know, in the early um, user group of the Kitab project uh, that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the PI, um, Sarah Bowen Savant at uh, Aga Khan University, you know, and, and her entire team of people who are working on this Kitab, Digital Humanities Project, Kitab, in this case, meaning knowledge, information technology, and the Arabic book, um, is that when when I, I learned more about Sarah, Sarah and her team's work, um, while still, uh, you know, a, a doctoral researcher, I was immediately sparked by all of these ideas of, you know, being able to apply computational textual reuse analysis to medieval texts like Futu al-Budan. And I actually started with what I think, you know, seems like a very simple or a, a very straightforward question that I was just really fascinated about, right? Which is, um, you know, maybe something that, that others have thought about, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if even those familiar with Baladari's work have never really considered, right? Which is, 
can we actually say anything about the popularity of Al-Baladhari's work, right? Is Al-Baladhari's work so read and so important for scholars of early Islamic history or for the late antique or early medieval Eastern Mediterranean? Is it really important to us because it happened to get a very early 19th century edition by Michael Jan de Hoya, the Dutch Orientalist in the 1860s? Or was it always popular, right? And that was what led de Hoya and the, the, his, his you know, sort of fellow colleagues in the 19th and early 20th centuries to work on the text, right? And, and what I do in the last chapter of the book is to, to provide not just the sort of close reading of the text that, we, that I, that I uh, have in the earlier chapter on the content of the work, but I really go to say, well, where else do we find Abeladhari's historical material? And um, what I come away with, I think, will be enormously interesting to, um, to, to anybody, really, who works in the pre-modern um, Arabic historical tradition, which is that we find his material in lots of places, and just as I argue in my genre chapter, uh, not defined to a particular genre of texts. Um, and I think for anybody who is interested in knowing more about you know, how even for, you know, sort of the medieval Middle Eastern um, historical traditions, right, how we can apply the tools of the digital humanities in interesting ways, how we can use um, digital tools to help us um, ask new questions about our tests, texts, um, I hope will be very, very valuable to, to, to people. And I think that it will provide some really useful information um, to confirm you know, as uh, maybe a bit of a spoiler, uh, a lot of these texts is popular throughout the medieval period. And so if you are a, a researcher who is relying heavily on Baladhari's material to help you, um, you know, construct, as I mentioned, the late antique or early medieval um, Islamic world, um, or you are a teacher, an instructor relying on Baladhari's texts to, you know, provide a narrative for, you know, quote unquote, what really happened in um, the early Islamic period. I'm happy to confirm that you are in very good company um, because for the better part of 1,200 years or so, um, we have been seeing that happen regularly. The book is really interesting. And I, I think um, at times uh, it, 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 it's easy to go into balladry overload because that is the subject of the book. But it's also important, and I think this is, we were talking about this uh, before we started recording, uh, to bear in mind that this is a historiographical exploration that can easily be broadened. And I think it's extremely useful for both scholars, uh, students, and historians of this period. Um, and so I wanted to, to ask if you could just maybe share your thoughts about how should scholars and historians of this period be approaching texts like this one? Um, what's important to keep in mind as they do so? And what kind of tools should be used to engage with them in a more critical manner? Yeah, so some, some of what I am arguing throughout the, the, the book, and I certainly have talked with colleagues about it, you know, sort of conferences over the years too, is that um, I can appreciate that when we are arriving to historical texts with very particular historical questions in mind already, it can sometimes mean that we are looking at an enormous quantity of texts, um, but only very small slivers of them, right? 
Um, if we're working on a project, you know, related to Basra uh, or Kufa, or we're working very specifically on a question, you know, that that settled up, settles us at looking at the, you know, the 710 CE, right? We we go to a wide variety of texts and we only read those texts or those parts of the text that are relevant to the historical questions that we are asking, and. Of course, there are reasons for this, right? Because, you know, many of us and many of the people perhaps who are listening to this will not be, you know, um, doing research just on Baladari or just on his text in particular. So, you know, there's only so much time and only so much, um, you know, focus that we can dedicate in our own publications to, you know, this wider discussion of the source. But that leaves us with so many questions and, and to be honest, so many problems when we just dip into these texts to kind of mine the material that we think is, is relevant to us and then move on. We don't think about them in that case as contained wholes. We don't think about what, what the author was really attempting to do when he put together those texts. We are not thinking carefully about what may have been included and what may have been omitted, what themes the texts have at its center, and the problematic nature of some of those questions, right? And, and that, of course, is a, is a pretty big problem, right, if we're not thinking about these, these questions. And so, what I am trying to do, what I have tried to do in this book and in, in much of my work on um, Al-Baladari that I have published since, is to really help researchers that may only dip into Baladari's texts for those small slivers of information to be aware of these biases, right? Because I think ultimately we need to realize that really all of these early Arabic texts that we have that are so critical to our reconstruction of these early periods. Um, and of course, I would say this, right? But I think all of these texts need these kind of very valuable focused studies about the author and about the construction of these texts in order for us to better, more carefully, more responsibly approach this material. And in other fields of medieval studies, um, this, of course, has, has been happening, I think, for a lot longer than it has in our field, right, of uh, Middle Eastern and, and, and with, uh, of Arabic studies more generally. And some of that is because, you know, these fields are, quote unquote, more mature. I mean, some of it actually is just because other fields of, you know, sort of medieval history, if we think about the global tradition more generally, don't have anywhere near as much surviving material as we have in Arabic, actually, right, um, from the pre-modern period. And so, um, the, the more studies that we get, these single studies or single author or single work studies, I think will be very valuable for us. And I'm happy to say that, um, you know, while my book is, in, is a kind of in a vanguard of a, a repopularization of a number of these types of approaches of these single author or single studies um, that have been done, because these type of single author works were actually a, a lot more common, even in our field, in the earlier uh, 20th century, right? And I'm thinking, of course, about, you know, work like Ahmed Shpul's work on uh, Masudi, for instance, right? But, you know, now you have, you know, my work on Baladari. Um, even before me, you had work by, um, you know, authors like Bola Shoshan on, on Atabari, you know, that, that are incredibly valuable. We have work by um, Edward Coghill on Ibn Abdel Hakim, you know, in his um, History of the Conquest of Egypt, that is another single author work. We have 
Tobias Anderson's work on Khalifa ibn Hayat, um, and there are you know many others that I'm even passing over here um, that are are really really important for us, right? Um, I, I don't I don't and can't expect that everybody is going to become a Baladari scholar like I am, right? But I think that all of us have a sort of responsibility to think about the text that we are using as not just data mines of uh, material, you know, that are valuable for our question, but to think about them as contained, intentionally constructed wholes. And so I hope that that will be um, how people will, you know, really approach any, any texts, you know, from, from our period or, or uh, elsewhere. And I hope that my book will be just one piece to, to as I've kind of said several times now, make people, uh, you know, more effective and even more capable researchers on their particular research questions. Inshallah, and the creek don't rise. Uh, so our traditional final question is, uh, what are you working on next? Yeah, I, um, it's, a, it's a nice question, of course, right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving this interview to you just on the other side of, of tenure now and with the paperback version of my book um, very shortly coming out. Congratulations. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so it's, a, it's been an interesting career moment for me. Some of what I'm doing actually is, is something that I never intended to do, which is, you know, um, teaching at, um, you know, a, a teaching university, a, a public state university, Columbus State University, the University System of Georgia, as I do right now, uh, means that I teach a lot of introductory world history classes, right? And, and some of what I've been working on over the last year as a bit of a preview is I've actually been working on a new OER, um, you know, sort of open educational resource textbook for world history that is being put together by OpenStax uh, out of Rice University, um, which I am very excited about. Um, you know, I'm working largely on material from the medieval period, which of course includes, um, you know, the rise of Islam and you know, periods, um, you know, they're slightly outside of my research focus, but that's been consuming quite a lot of my time right now. But in addition to that, um, you know, I continue very thankfully, you know, to be involved um, in the user group um, for the European Research Council uh, Kitab program that I mentioned earlier out of Aga Khan, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, all about, you know, and more widely, more generally, uh, a big supporter of the in Islamicate text initiative of thinking about the digital humanities and, and how we can approach medieval Arabic texts and textual reuse over time. Um, but much of my research, and for anybody who sees me, you know, sort of on, on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Ryan Joseph Lynch. I'm a terrible Twitter follower, but um, I kind of describe myself as the, the Baladari guy, right? Because, um, you know, while many people, uh, while many people finish their dissertation, you know, and they're ready to move on to the next project or they're, you know, they say, oh, thank goodness this is done. I'm so done with this author or so done with this text or even so done with this period. I'm ready to move on to something different. Um, I am not tired nor exhausted of Baladari. And so a lot of my research and a lot of my publications that have come out over the last year and will come out over the next year are continuing to expand my hypotheses about um, Al-Baladari as an author and about his context in which he is is writing. And so a lot of what I am doing now is uh, applying these hypotheses that I have put together related to Futu al-Buldan um, to test them on the significantly larger Ansab al-Ashraf, right? And, and Ansab al-Ashraf is, you know, and of course I would say this, but Ansab al-Ashraf is an amazing text, right? And it's 
um, it is so important, right? Um, if you're interested in the study of er- early Arabic poetry, right, it is one of the largest surviving, you know, uh, collections of uh, Arabic poetry that we have that survives, right? It's this enormous biographical compendium of the, the early period, especially from, you know, not just the conquest period, but the Umayyad period more generally. And it is enormous, especially in comparison uh, to Futu al-Budan, but also to other texts that survive from the from the ninth century and even later, right? I mean, it really is not that much smaller than, um, you know, Atabari's Tari. And so there is an enormous amount of work still to be done there. So a lot of my future projects are uh, really focused on, you know, questions related to the construction and the, the, the value of Ansab um, al-Ashraf, which um, has been a lot of fun because, um, you know, and I think some who, who may be teaching Baladari texts, especially for, um, for, you know, students of, um, you know, who may be approaching uh, the study of Fusha, you know, as, as part of their, their education. But a lot of these texts are a, a great starting point, actually, right? Because the prose is, is very nice. It, in a lot of cases, is very approachable and very understandable. Um, and uh, the Ansab is a really, a really pleasant text to read in many cases, actually. It has a lot of very interesting stories, some very entertaining, in other cases, some very dry. Um, but it is really worth um, a lot more study. And, and so I hope to be doing some of that. Excellent. Well, well, we'll definitely keep an eye out. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of the, 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 the dual language editions, especially for, for language learners. I think that's uh, something that was really missing when I learned Arabic. And I'm, I'm always happy to see when people uh, put energy in, in, into that as well. So. Yeah. If I, and if I can say something on that, uh, Chris, something that I, I hadn't mentioned earlier, although it's connected with you know, what I had mentioned about me imagining there are dual audiences for, for my books, right? Both of, you know, students and or non-specialists approaching, um, you know, my, my book and the work of Abaladri or, you know, for specialists is that, you know, uh, it was certainly the case for me and it will be the case for, for, for perhaps many who are, um, you know, teaching at the undergraduate or graduate level of students of Fusha. That's that, um, you know, Baladari is a starting point for, you know, many students to, to approach this material. And, and Futua al-Baldan is a very valuable text, not just because of everything it includes, right, Because, but also because of its availability in an edition and also its availability in a translation, right? And the translation that we have that is now, you know, out of copyright put together by the first volume by Philip Hitty and the second volume by Francis Murgotten in the 19-teens and 1920s. These are very dated tradition, uh, you know, um, translations today. Um, but I would be loath to, um, you know, to, to, to pass over, you know, the, the critical work of, of Hugh Kennedy, um, right, who has been putting together a new translation of Baladari's Futu al-Bulban that um, will be very uh, well received, I have no doubt, when it is finally published. And I mean, Hugh is an incredible Arabist and an mm. incredible um, historian of, of early Islam, right? I couldn't really imagine anyone better to put together a new translation. But all of this, I think, is especially valuable, right, for students or for specialists who are reading Baladari texts in the original Arabic, who may be approaching it in its translated form. Um, you know, either one of those cases, I think that um, that readers will be able to take away an enormous amount from from my book and to get a lot more out of reading Baladari's texts. Um, if you if you also take the time to engage with my research, Ryan Lynch is the author of Arab Conquests and Early Islamic Historiography: The Fatuh and Buldan of Al Baladari. It is out now in paperback from Ivy Taurus. 
Ryan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. 